hello, hello. I'm Celeste, and this is Week by Week. On today's episode, I do a very quick gratitude check-in with my husband, and then later on, our guest is the wonderful Jenny Lisk. Let's do this. Hi. Oh, hello there. Fancy meeting you here. Here we are. I feel like we are both feeling a little burnt out today. What? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not even going to meet you there because I'm too burnt out to meet you there. But I (laughs) appreciate you trying to joke. (laughs) (laughs) We're tired. It's just been like a hectic week, I think. But it is what it is. Anyway, you and I have been running around like crazy. So I thought today it would be fun to start off our conversation talking a little bit about gratitude and just saying three things that we're both grateful for. I guess three things we're individually grateful for. (laughs) Uh, No, wait. We have three things. We have to guess the three (laughs) things. And then that's the only way that we are successful at gratitude. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We're going to win gratitude. (laughs) But I hear people talking so much about just like making a gratitude list every day and how it's actually really good for your brain and being grounded and just mental health in general. And they can be really simple. It doesn't have to be, you know, a profound thing every single day. So I guess we'll go back and forth. Why don't you start? Three things you're grateful for today. I am grateful for you as my wife, that you are my wife. I am incredibly grateful for. I love that, but it always feels so self-serving to have you compliment me right out the gate. So I appreciate that, but... But you're not grateful for it. I am grateful. I'm grateful for you saying it, but I'm just... Um, I was being facetious. I know. I don't know. All right. All right. Let me, let me try again. Try it one more time. Let me, let me try and be a worse husband. All right. Um, <laughs> I am grateful for the smile of our little guy. Oh, that's nice. It is my favorite thing maybe ever. I'm grateful that we went to a public garden today and got to mostly carry our child, (laughs) but walk around a little bit and look at flowers and just be outside all together. I'm grateful for our family, extended Mm. family. Oh, that's nice. Everybody. That's nice. I'm grateful that we have dessert downstairs that I'm excited to eat. (laughs) I am incredibly grateful that you let me sleep in this morning. Mm. That was selfless (laughs) and loving. Mm. And I love you for it. I am grateful. Thank you. I'm really grateful that after this, I get to go and watch the Tony Awards tonight. (laughs) Uh, I... I love musical theater. I love regular theater. And I really, I mean, the, the Tony Awards are my Super Bowl, so I enjoy watching them. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I was feeling really rough coming into this, and I do feel a little bit better. I'm so glad. Mm. I love you. I love you. Our guest today is Jenny Lisk. Jenny is an award-winning author and also a widowed mom. Her book and now her podcast is about her experience becoming a widowed mom, and she provides resources to help make people who are experiencing a loss feel less alone. 
I think the work she's doing is incredible. There's so much of this conversation I was really struck by and reflected on since we spoke. We talk about how to talk to your kids about hard topics and how to leave the door open for tough conversations with your kids. We also talk about what it means to be a grief ally, which is a term she uses, and what support looks like and how to show up for somebody who's grieving. I was so thankful she took this time to sit down and talk to me, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So let's do this. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Celeste. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like we have so much to dive into. But to start out, would you mind telling me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a widowed parent. And that is why I'm doing all this. And what I do is I host a podcast called The Widowed Parent Podcast. And I am a grief author. My book is called Future Widow, which I'm sure we'll talk all about those things. But yeah, basically, I'm doing what I do because I'm I'm here to help widowed parents like myself, you know, feeling lost, like uh, I didn't sign up for this job, right? How do I raise grieving kids by myself? And that's that's why I'm here. That's right. Thank you. I would love to just start with your personal story, if you don't mind sharing that. It's actually crazy to think it was seven years ago right now. We just were in the like starting this hell. So my husband, Dennis, was diagnosed with brain cancer, a very aggressive type called glioblastoma. And it started out, you know, it w- it seemed like nothing, right? He was a little dizzy, which, you know, I mean, sometimes people are dizzy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you're dehydrated. I don't know. Maybe you're too tired. Maybe you have two kids and you're working and you're busy and life is full. And so you're dizzy. Okay. Well, it turned out that it was one of the first signs of this very aggressive brain cancer. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing these signs, little signs of cognitive confusion, right? Like, Actually, the first time he said he was a little dizzy, we had a whole discussion about it. I was asking him all these questions, right? Maybe you should go see your doctor. But it was a Friday night, right? And it wasn't like we were going to go to the ER because he wasn't having a seizure or like mm-hmm. some kind of emergency. It was just like, oh, why don't you call your doctor on Monday and go check it out, right? So then I we finished the discussion. I went and got takeout. I came back and I'm all like, okay, how are you doing? How are you feeling, right? And he looks at me and he says, oh, I'm doing okay. But I've been feeling a little dizzy lately. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the way he said it, I kind of I, I stopped and I looked at him and I was like, well, you know, you already told me that we just talked about that. And he said, we did. And I, so I was like, OK, what is going on here? Right. Yeah. Well, that was the start of this just unraveling it. You know, two weeks later, he was at the doctor, like just primary care, thinking it was just whatever. Right. Doctor says, let's do an MRI of your brain. Then he says, there's something really wrong with your brain. You need to go see the neurosurgeon tomorrow. And the neurosurgeon says, we'll do surgery the following day. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm like, okay, wait, two weeks ago, our life was normal. Fine. We had a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old. And we both had jobs and, you know, a dog and a cat and a house and a normal life. Right? And now we're having brain surgery? So that was the start of eight months of cancer, mm-hmm. caregiving on my side, right? Multiple ER visits. So there's one week, I think we were in the ER five times in the same week. Wow. Right? Complications, surgeries, all these things. And and the thing was with, with this particular brain cancer is it's so aggressive that the five-year survival rate is super, super low, mm. like in the single digits. So I knew from the beginning, well, I mean, there's always this little outside chance, like maybe you'll be one of the small percent. Mm-hmm. But basically, I knew that this wasn't going to end well at all right some types of cancer you can think about 
fighting it. You can think about clinical trials. You can think about finding different doctors or second opinions. But this was basically a death sentence. And I had this eight-year-old and 10-year-old. And we had an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. But I say I because from the beginning, I was almost single parenting. Wow. Because he was cognitively affected so much that even when he was still alive, I was instantly became a single parent because mm-hmm. I was taking care of him and the two kids. And he was so confused that he never he didn't remember what kind of cancer he had. He didn't remember that he was dying, even though it, nothing was kept from him. Right. But he would forget. Mm-hmm. So anyway, eight months of all that. And he died in January of 2016. And then that was when I officially became a widowed parent. But even backing up to the beginning, I was like, how do I, what, how do I, I don't know what I don't know. Right. Right. I didn't sign up for this. So who can help me? What do I do? How do I do this? And so that in a very long summary is how I got into this, into this position. Thank you so much for sharing that. When you first were navigating the diagnosis and then the eight months that followed after that, how did you talk to your children about that? Because that's a substantial change. You said cognitively he was affected pretty quickly. So they're going to feel that difference. What were those conversations like? Well, yeah, you're right. There was absolutely no hiding the situation from them. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, you know, at the hospital or he was home and he was going to the ER and there was no like, let's pretend everything's normal, right? They could tell that it wasn't normal that was one of the hardest things was trying to figure out how do I talk to them? And I got some advice early on, which was actually when I learned later, when I started hosting my podcast, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll talk about what I learned about being honest with kids. But early on, you know, at first he just had a brain tumor, right? Mm -hmm. Well, because that's all we knew. It was a tumor. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of brain tumors and some of them are more treatable than others, right? Some of them have a better prognosis. So, you know, 10 days after his first surgery, the biopsy came back and they said, it is cancer. It is glioblastoma. Mm. Right. So I had to, then the question comes up, what do I tell my kids or how do I tell my kids? Mm -hmm. And I, a friend of mine called me up and she said, how are you going to tell your kids? And I think she could tell I was hoping to just like stick my head in the sand and bury the whole, like, you know, just (laughs) ignore it. Right. But the thing is we had a very supportive community around us, including the people at the kids' school. And by this point, I had already started a Caring Bridge blog, you know, essentially to keep people up to date. And the school had asked if they could share my Caring Bridge link with the school community. And I had said yes. So by this point, the news had gotten out in the school community, like because I did a post, right? We, we met mm-hmm. with the doctor. It's glioblastoma. I think the post was probably, you know, that short. I didn't have the heart to, like, explain what that meant or I'm like, people can Google it. I just I can't I can't go there right now. Right. Yeah. So. I had posted this and word was out. And so my friend calls me and she says, the thing is, you need to tell your kids yourself and you need to tell them tonight. Because mm-hmm. she said, we had a conversation at our dinner table tonight. We t- we gave our kids an update. We told them it was glioblastoma. And they said, is he going to die? Mm-hmm. And we didn't want to lie to them. So we told them, you know, yeah, we don't know when, but yes. And so she said, this conversation is probably happening at dinner tables all around the school community tonight. And you don't want your kids to hear this on the playground tomorrow Mm -hmm. from some other kid. And I'm like, oh, okay, she's right. But really? Like, come on. Like, ah, how do I do this? So, you know, but she was absolutely right. Right. Like the only thing worse 
than hearing that your dad is going to die is hearing it in a unsupportive context or hearing it randomly from some kid and feeling like your other parent didn't level with you or you know just like there's no way to make it better mm-hmm. but there are ways to make it worse and one of those ways would have been for me not to talk to them about it personally um so I, and I talked to them not with him because mm-hmm. he was just too cognitively confused to be part of the discussion So I gathered them in one of the kids' bedrooms, and I basically just said, you know, we met with the doctor today, and it is brain cancer. You know, the type of tumor is cancerous. It's called glioblastoma, and the doctors are not going to be able to fix it. And, you know, they say with kids, you kind of, you know, you, you give the facts, and you explain, and you let them ask questions, and you, right? And so they asked, is he going to die? And I said, yeah. And, you know, and I'm crying and, you know, Mm -hmm. and my daughter said, is he going to live until Christmas? Mm. No, no. First, she said, actually, is he going to live to see me graduate? Oh. And at this point, she was eight. So we're talking 10 years away. And so I said, no. Right. I I mean, I said, you know, nicer than that. But, you Mm -hmm. know, the answer was basically, no, he's not going to live to see you graduate in a decade. And then she said, is he going to live until Christmas? And this discussion was like May or June. So Christmas was a half a year away. And I said, I don't know. You know, I hope so. What I didn't know was the prognosis, right? And I actually, I had asked the doctor, I said, what is the life expectancy here? Mm -hmm. And she asked my husband if he wanted to know. And he said, no. Like in the moment he understood, but then he would forget, you know, but later. So she pulled me out of the room and she said, well, I can't tell you what it's going to be in his case, but it's into the average life expectancy was like 13 months. Wow. Yeah. And and she said, you know, I don't know what it'll be in his case, but just so you know, kind of what you're dealing with. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't think it's going to be that long because he was so quickly, massively affected. And anyway, Mm -hmm. it was about eight months in his case that he lived. So when my daughter said, you know, if Christmas is was at that point was seven months away or something. And I said, I don't know, but I, I hope so. And he did actually live past Christmas. He lived until just past New Year's. It's, a, I think, a reminder when you're talking to kids, like, this is how they tell time. This is how they understand the world. Like, mm-hmm. in my mind, it makes me think it's a reminder on some level, like, oh, wow, I really am talking to a child and trying to relay this really, really heavy information. Yeah, it's interesting that the two markers were, will he live to see me graduate and will he live until Christmas? Yeah. Like that was maybe in an eight-year-old's mind, those are like, you know, the long-term things and the medium-term things, I guess, because it wasn't like short-term, like next week, right? right? right. And, uh, you know, related to Christmas, it was interesting. Probably in November, early December, the kids had done a like a Christmas present-making workshop thing after school. And she brought it home and, you know, the teacher had them wrap it up and stuff. She brought it home. So this was probably now early December by the time she brought it home. And she wanted to give it to him right away in case he died before Christmas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she's like, can can I give it to him today? And I was like, yes. Yeah. Right? Like, at that point, there's like, there's why stand on ceremony, right? Oh, no, no. We have to wait until December 25th, right? <laughs> right, like, right. And, you know, and the thing, and we both, and she and I both, by this point, she was nine, realized, like, she could give it to him that day after school. He could open it. Yay, here's artwork. We could wrap it back up mm. and put it back under the tree 
and she could give it to him again mm-hmm. because he wasn't going to remember that he had opened it. And that's something she understood at that point? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's what we did. And he, he opened it again and it was like, yay, here's artwork that she made, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, but th- that was a kind of, you know, day-to-day reality that that we were dealing with. And there was, you know, for the last... Oh, four months, maybe he was on hospice at home. And so, you know, him being sick, having hospice nurses come, having hospice aides come was very much part of our daily life. Having, you know, all this medication that I was giving him a million times a day. I had to give him a a blood thinner shot in the evening. I mean, there was no trying to hide this from them or pretend that things were were okay or normal or anything like that and and you know like the kinds of things they could do with him would be like sit and watch tv with him so those are the kinds of things they did because that was he was bedridden at that point and there was no like let's have a nice discussion because cognitively he wasn't you know holding up a discussion how did the ongoing both emotional and practical conversations go through that experience because i would assume as things are changing medically for him and they're noticing, like if they are having hospice workers in and out of the house, that's going to both have emotional and practical ramifications for both their understanding and their ingesting of it. Yeah. Well, so this is interesting that you ask about this because this is one of the things that I really reflected on when I wrote Future Widow was the things that I wish I had known and done. And, you know, it's a fine line because I really, I don't, I know I did the best that I could with the information that I had. And so I'm, I I'm don't feel like I'm beating myself up mm-hmm. or I'm not, in, you know, some people have commented, oh, you're beating yourself up a lot. I'm like, no, I'm really, I'm not. I'm accepting that I did the best I could. And I think it's possible to accept that you did the best you could and still wish that you had known X or Y or Z so that you right. could have. Right. Um, so for, so you asked about practical and emotional. So the practical stuff, I feel like I had that stuff handled pretty well. Right. Like, medicine and food and clothing and diapers and can you you know even there were times when you know towards the end you tried to get him to take pills and he you know won't swallow not because he couldn't didn't it wasn't a swallowing problem per se but cognitively like understanding that when you put a pill in your mouth you need to swallow and so my daughter nine you know being like it's okay daddy just take a sip you can swallow Mm -hmm. you know and like kind of coaching him through those very practical things Mm -hmm. right you know, my son getting the music box because it was Christmas time by then. So there was a snow globe with a music box and winding it up, you know, putting it on his table next to his bed. But the more emotional connection things, I wish that I had opened more discussions at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was dealing with a lot logistically, right? Mm-hmm. Even though I had a lot of help, even if people were helping me with the kids, I was still the parent. Even if people were helping me with my husband, I was still the, the ultimate caregiver, right? All the things. So I think I was relieved that the kids kind of sort of seemed okay. Like if somebody wasn't crying or something, then like, okay, good. <laughs> Everybody's fine. I can worry about the other problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what I wish I had had figured out how to make the effort to do was to step back, you know, like if in the example I gave of my daughter is coaching him on how to take his medicine, which I'm like, oh, this is this is great. Like she's being so helpful. Right. I wish I had stepped back then later that night, maybe, and said, thank you so much for helping with dad. That was really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then open some discussion like, how was that for you? Or that must have been weird. How was it? Yeah. Right. And let her maybe 
open up or not. But even, you know, like for me to open that door and to let her know the door is open. Yeah. Two outcomes. I could have said, how was that for you? And she could have said, that was really weird. This is really hard. Mm -hmm. And so that would have been great because then we would have been talking about feelings and how she, right? Other outcome, if she had said, if she had basically like not taken my invitation to talk, Mm -hmm. it's still worth doing because it's sending the message. The door is open. We can talk about difficult topics, even if you don't want to talk about them right now. That's fine. But maybe you want to talk about it tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe some other time, right? Because it's interesting that a lot of times kids who are grieving, they're afraid of upsetting their other parent, Mm. their surviving parent. Mm -hmm. Or in this case, you know, pre-grief, we were both alive, obviously, but it was kids are be afraid of upsetting, you know, me in this case, right? Like if, and so they won't, oftentimes they won't bring up if they're sad about, you know, their dad died or their mom died. They don't want to upset their other parents, so they don't bring it up. And so I think it's important for the surviving parent to kind of be aware that that could be a thing that's going on and send the message to the kid that the door is open for these discussions. And so, like I said, even if they don't bite today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, at some point, having sent the message that we don't have to run away from difficult topics is it's important to to do that. That's that's a really fantastic point. Thank you for sharing that. And I think kind of across the board, that's that's mm-hmm. just a really helpful tool for parenting and then specifically in these situations. Yeah, there's lots of difficult topics. Yeah, right? always. And, and so it doesn't just apply to yeah. this. But, you know, in this context of what we're talking about, I started my podcast, the Widowed Parent Podcast, and I started interviewing lots of different people, including grief experts. And one of the most interesting things that I learned, and this is kind of partially how I was able to go back as I, you know, so I started the podcast, interviewed all these people, learned all these things. Then I started writing my book. And I and so one of the things I had learned was how important it was to be honest with kids about difficult topics. Mm-hmm. And so that's how then when I wrote the book, I was able to, you know, weave that back in. But so what turns out that the bond of trust between the kid and the surviving parent is very, very important, mm. both for its own sake. Right. You need to have that trusting relationship and also as a pattern for future close, trusting, intimate relationships, Mm. whether it's future relationships with spouses or partners, whether it's future relationships with close friends, with, you know, close colleagues, anybody that you might need to have some kind of trusting relationship with, that setting the pattern of trust between the the kid and the surviving parent becomes a, a basis for the kid being able to build those trusting relationships in the future. And so a lot of times what happens is that parents very well-meaning all parents want to protect their kids right the question really is what does protect them mean Mm. and that's a really hard question and so sometimes it's quite common actually in a case where maybe the other parent has died of something that people don't want to talk about suicide for example Mm -hmm. it's fairly common for the parent and everyone around the kid to make up a cover story like Mm. your dad had a heart attack Right. Something else that could be a sudden surprise cause of death, but that somehow seems easier to talk about, less stigmatized, whatever. So they tell them that. Well, the problem is the kid is eventually going to find out that it was suicide. And whether they eventually find out because you decide at some point that they're old enough and you just sit them down and tell them Mm -hmm. or whether they find out because they overhear it from some other kid on the playground 
Or maybe they Google it and they find out because there was something in the newspaper about it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're just, you know, every time they walk into the room, the adults kind of get in hushed voices. And, you know, every time they ask a question, the adult seems super awkward about it. Right. And the kid, maybe the kid doesn't know exactly what's going on, but they know that something doesn't add up. Mm. And eventually they find out that their surviving parent lied to them and told them it was a heart attack instead of a suicide. And then that bond of trust has an issue there. Right. And so as a parent, right, who before I got involved in all this, I was like a regular parent. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I had regular kid problems, regular life stuff. Right. And we had two parents and two kids. And like I said, things were kind of normal not no like i don't know extreme circumstances or whatever so i didn't know about children's grief and i didn't know that much about like i don't know child psychology i mean you read a couple books here and there but right you're not an expert you're an expert in a lot of other things totally. and then you learn about things like potty training and you learn about things like i don't know chores and things right but you don't learn about grief for kids right and so you know, one of the things that I really struggled with, and I started noticing this when he was sick, is I don't know what to do. Mm. And I don't know who can help me or who I can bounce things off of. Because, you know, when you're dealing with like regular kid things, well, your mom friends get together and you talk about potty training. And your mom friends get together and you talk about, I don't know, teaching your kid to drive. Or you talk about the things that everybody's dealing with. Mm-hmm. Right? Teething. I don't know. Whatever. But unless your other mom friends also have grieving kids, mm-hmm. you've lost maybe that source of people to bounce things off of. From your reflections, both in talking to grief counselors or guests on your podcast or in the process of writing the book, do you have specific tips that you have for talking to kids about death and grief? Well, yeah. And actually, this, this is one of the topics that I dive into on the on the podcast, and it is a mix of grief experts and I ask them specific questions, but also people who are widowed parents who are reflecting and sharing their journeys. And then also, very interestingly, people who are now adults. Mm. And when they themselves were a kid or a teenager, they lost one of their parents. And so they're reflecting on like how things went for them and how what they wish people had known or done, right? And that's very interesting because, you know, I don't know what it's like to lose a parent as a nine-year-old or an 11-year-old. Mm-hmm. In fact, both of my parents are alive today. So even though my kids and I, we all lost the same person. His name was Dennis. I lost a spouse and they lost a parent. And it's a different relationship, which by its nature makes the experience different. Right. So anyway, so it, talking with people who can reflect on how they're growing up when they lost their parent when they were three or 12 or 19, it's very useful to me to, to learn put things on my radar screen, like things I wouldn't have thought of, right? But to your question about tips for parents, so we've already talked about the importance of being honest, and I think that's the number one. And it's, to me, it was one of the hardest things to know, Mm. right? Because it feels like a fundamental, like, okay, so my husband died of cancer, not suicide. But let's say my husband had died of suicide. It feels like you either have to tell them it's suicide or you have to not tell them it's suicide. And it doesn't feel like there's there's a way to partially right Right. i mean you're either telling them the truth or you're not telling them the truth and it feels like you have to make a choice and it feels like the it's a very fraught like i don't know which is the right way to go and whichever way i might screw everything up right right Right. like so that piece of knowledge like defaulting to being honest 
is I think a fundamental thing to, to know and to understand. And I know, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into all the details or that doesn't mean you, know, you can kind of let the kid guide the discussion, mm. which depends a lot on the age of the kid and their interests and what they already know or don't know, or, you know, lots of things. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's kind of like talking with kids about, I don't know, anything, sex or whatever, right? Like you start the discussion and you let them ask questions and then you add more and then you add more, right? It's like eventually they'll they'll ask more questions and, and you know, and this is why, again, like sending that message that the door is open, mm. right? So maybe the first time you talk about it, you tell them some of it and then they don't seem to want to know anymore. But then you you want them to, to, to understand that the door is open so that later, even if it's years from now, they can come back and say, you know, I was thinking more about that. I'm, you know, I have these other questions now. And they, they know that you'll be receptive to having those discussions. So that's, that's so great. That's, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind. And then another one is that it's really, it's okay not to have all the answers, which is a really hard one mm-hmm. because, you know, you kind of feel like if you don't have the answer, you can't talk about it. Well, here's the thing with a thing like grief, death, cancer, all these things. Some things you might have answers to. Some things you might not. Some things maybe don't have answers. Mm. So let me explain what I mean. If if it's a question like, how does cancer work? Or what's a tumor? Or, you know, things like that. I might not know that off the top of my head because I'm not a doctor. But those things have answers. You can go and look and read up about how cancer works. And if, you're, if your kid is interested in kind of the those kinds of factual questions, that could be something where you could say, well, I'm not really sure how this works, but let, you know, if you're interested, let's look that up together and learn about it. So there's some questions like that. Mm-hmm. There's other questions like, like my daughter saying, is dad going to live to Christmas? Right. Well, that doesn't really have, I mean, I don't know the answer to it. Right. And, but so what I can do is tell her what I know and what I don't know and, you know, promise to keep her updated. You know, if there's things I don't know because the doctors haven't figured out X, Y, or Z yet, I can say, you know, this is what I know and, you know, we have a follow-up with the doctor next Wednesday and I'm expecting to learn about this and such and when I, as soon as I get back, I will fill you in on what I learned. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're looping them into the process. You're not keeping them in the dark. You're telling them what you know and what you don't know and, and you know, making sure that you kind of keep them in the loop. Um, then there's other questions like, why did dad have to die? Mm. Well, that doesn't have an answer at all, Right. <laughs> Right. There is no I don't know, but I'm going to see the doctor next week and I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Right. And in my old you know, self, I probably would have, you know, afraid of questions like that. Like, oh, I don't we can't have this discussion because I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. Right. And the listeners can't see. I'm like holding up my hands going, ah! <laughs> right? like, uh, you know, and what I have learned is that with those kinds of questions, you may not be able to answer it. But what you can do is connect around the emotions behind the question. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why did dad have to die? Well, you could take that different directions. I don't know, but it sucks. I don't know, but all I know is I really miss him. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. I can tell that you do too. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, questions like asking them how this is for them or what, what they're worried about. or You know, questions where you're connecting around the emotions and encouraging the door to be open. Mm. Right? So even though you can't answer it, 
you want to have an answer. Why do I have to wear my seatbelt? Well, because so you don't get, when you get in a car crash, you don't get hurt, right? Why do I have to eat my, I don't know, dinner before my dessert? Well, so you get enough good nutrition. You know, why do I have to go to bed? Well, so you can be up for school in the morning. Those have answers, right? Those have answers. And so I guess one of the, you know, these big things I learned was that even if I don't have all the answers, I don't have to be afraid of the discussion. Oh, I love that answer so much. I think that's so helpful. And what you're saying, too, about connecting around the emotions, because I think we get so tense when we don't know what to say or don't know how to respond or there is no answer. And how do you describe to a child there is no answer? And so uh, connecting with that emotion, I think, is that is just a really, really helpful, helpful piece of information. Thank you for that. And like I said, I, I can say this now because I had trouble with all these things, mm. right? <laughs> right? Right? Like I was, I, I, like I said, those eight months when he was sick and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be a widowed parent. I don't know how to do this. Right. And then he died and then I was a widowed parent and I'm like, well, I still don't know how to do this. Right. Right. And I went to Amazon and I typed in, you know, like, where's the book that's going to tell me how to be a widowed parent? And I was like, okay, well, I'm not finding a book. So great. Now what do I do? Which is really why I started the podcast, because I was like, I can't be the only widowed parent out there who's who's wondering these things and struggling with these things. Right. And so that's and and I struggled, too. I'm like, well, OK, I could I could start a podcast. I could interview people and I could bring this what I'm learning. But then I'm like, why? Well, who am I to host a podcast for widowed parents? This is three and three and a half years ago now. Right. For almost four years ago. I'm sitting here like, why me? Right. Because I'm not I don't run a grief center. Right. I'm not a licensed mental health counselor, like a therapist, right? Like, it seems a little weird to be saying, oh, I'm going to have a podcast for widowed parents. I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. Well, and then I realized, wait a second. The reason this works is because I'm not the expert. Mm -hmm. I am interviewing the experts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I am representative of my listeners. I will stand in their place in front of the microphone, you know, channeling their, you know, questions, thoughts, fears, worries, you know, all these yeah. things, right? And be the representative of my audience as I have this person across the microphone for me and ask them things on behalf of my listeners and bring that knowledge to to my audience. Now that I've interviewed a hundred and some odd people, mm-hmm. now I have learned all these things. And so now I can, you know, speak to people and, you know, and, and do things like write a book, right? And so and that's where you know with the with the 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 uh, with future widow the backbone of the story is the caring bridge journal that I had for the eight months mm. because I by the time eight months was over I had fifteen thousand words of journal entries that documented a young family's experience with terminal illness mm-hmm. and I'm like okay and people were telling me oh you should write a book oh you're such a good writer blah blah, blah you know and I'm like ah uh, okay I, maybe there's a start of a story here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a story or a book yet, mm-hmm. but there's 15,000 words of firsthand writing documenting this experience. So there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. But what makes it into something that becomes interesting or valuable or worthwhile for people to read? And so I struggled with that for a long time. And and like I said, then I started the podcast and I did the podcast for quite a while. And then I was like, you know, now I've learned enough through all these people I've been interviewing Yeah, that I could go back and say okay here's the portrayal of the you know this time here's what was happening in real time but now i'm adding in the things that i had wished i had done differently or now that i know these things you know here's some key points for people other people who are going through this now like if i had known this this i would have set myself up for you know, 
things to be a little less hard later or whatever. So that plus sharing things that I wasn't ready to like fully dive into at in real time. The stuff that I wrote in the Caring Bridge was all true, but I didn't share everything that was happening in the Caring Bridge. And by the time a few years later, I was like, okay, now I'll go back and like flesh out some stuff. Utilizing the fact that you are a podcast host, what do you think is a question that's missed in this category of grief, grief with children, grieving parents? And then what would be your response to that? So I'm going to ask you to ask a question and respond to it. But I, I'm curious, like, what is the blind spot that maybe someone who hasn't gone through it would have that you can offer? Well, you know, I, I think that people don't realize that there are actually resources out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I think they're fragmented and I think they're not as well known by people like like me before I was an outsider to this whole grief thing and all of a sudden I'm thrown into the grief thing and I'm like well I don't know anything about this world right mm-hmm. well it turns out there are kids and family grief centers in many communities mm. but unless you happen to know about it or have somebody your friend or somebody who tells you about it you know, here's an example there's a really great grief center in Atlanta Georgia called Kate's Club mm. and they're very you know good well-funded, well-organized, well-regarded program that's doing terrific work in Atlanta. I interviewed them on my show a couple times now. I got an email from a listener and she said, this is so-and-so. I'm in Atlanta. I love your podcast. And I have to thank you for episode whatever number it was. She's like, my kid's dad died. I live right down the street from Kate's Club. I didn't know they existed. Wow. I drive by them every single day, dropping my kids off to and from school. I didn't know they were there. And I heard your podcast in Seattle and listened to this interview, and I'm going to call them and see if I can get, you know, hooked up with their program. So this is, you know, an example. That's where, fantastic. Yeah. Where it's like, we, we don't know, you know, that these, some of these things are out there. Yeah. Um, and there are books on different pieces of the puzzle and, you know, different resources and different pieces of the puzzle, but nothing, I think, comprehensive enough. And so I, I view one of my roles, you know, as, as hosting this podcast is to bring these kinds of things to people that they don't necessarily know about. There is, like I said, good work that people are doing mm-hmm. and trying to highlight it and get it to the right people at the right time. And it's, you know, like right now during the pandemic, there are even more kids, right? right? Children's grief has been a problem for a long time. I mean, a problem, right. an issue. It's an issue. It, there are always parents who are dying younger than they should and leaving children and teenagers behind. And now with the pandemic, last I saw there were 200,000 kids in this country who lost a parent or a primary caregiver just to COVID. Wow. Plus all the other kids who are still losing parents to other causes. Right. 200,000 more kids. That's a lot of kids. And so the you know, we're starting because of that to see some more visibility into this issue. The mainstream media is all of a sudden covering this as if it's a new issue. <laughs> right? Oh, it's, you know, it, it it's terrible. And it is terrible that this kid and this family and profiling them, they've lost their parent and all the, the terrible and sad things. And it is terrible and sad. And the only thing I, I think when I read this, I mean, the only quibble I have is like, this is not a new problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they're writing the profile stories and I'm glad they're calling attention to the issue. And it just makes me think, but where were you three years ago and five years ago and 10 years ago? Because there were still kids you could have profiled and still could have called attention to the issue. Right. And access to resources that are needed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And calling those things out. So I, 
I think that it's it's important and one of my you know roles and even if your kid goes to a a grief center mm. you know once or twice a month and they and like I said they have excellent programs peer groups for different ages but even if your kid went to that once or twice a month and they went to a therapist every week and they went to some like grief camp in the summer which believe it or not there are grief camps it's kind of like summer camp but with a grief element but even if your kid did all those things which is a lot of grief work Mm-hmm. there's still like 300 other days in the year where it's all on you, the widowed parent, to even figure out. So even if they're doing all these other things, I think there's still a huge gap and it's not being talked about enough of how do we support the surviving parents. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about both perspectives of that, both the community support aspect or the grief ally, as you have termed it, which I think is a fantastic way to say phrase that. And then also as the parent, the surviving parent. So to start with the community support aspect of things, what are ways that we can truly show up and be a grief ally for somebody who's going through something that might be maybe scary to us, quite honestly, or different than what we've gone through? What what does actual support look like? I've actually done a lot of work in this area, too, because we had so much support around us, which I think I mentioned before, it was the first time I'd been on this side of the table, like on the receiving end of all this Mm. support and, or even just on the receiving end of awareness of people around me of knowing what's going on. And I learned a lot about, you know, like when you see the people who seem to know what to say, the people who run away and don't want to talk about it, the people who are awkward, like, yeah, I know I'm one of those people who's like, oh my God, I have to write a condolence card, but I don't know what to write. So maybe I'll just like, not write it yet. And and what I've realized is the reason, like, let's just take a condolence card as an example. Mm-hmm. And it could be making a comment to somebody in person too. The person, the supporter, what they really want to do is is fix it. They want to do something that's going to be helpful, mm. right? So like in my case, when my husband was sick, what everybody around us really wanted to do was fix fix it. Well, mm-hmm. there was no fixing it. That None of those people could take away the cancer None of those people could change the fact that he was going to die. None of those people could change the fact that I was going to be a widowed parent. Now, Mm. you know, depending on what the illness the person has, the doctor might or might not be able to fix it. In our case, he, the doctor couldn't, but anyway, all the allies, they can't fix the actual problem. And I think that's what stops them up a lot. Cause you feel like maybe if I think a little harder, I'll think of just the right words that'll fix it. Right. Maybe if I think a little harder, wait a little longer, it'll, something will come to me that will fix it. So I think that sort of separating yourself from that, like I can't fix it. But what I can do is maybe you put it in two categories. One is I can be there. Mm. Nothing I say will fix it. But if I'm if I whatever I do sends a message to my friend that I'm here and I care and I'm not running away, even if this is hard. Mm-hmm. whatever that looks like, if that's the basic message of what you're saying, then that is awesome. And then the other piece of it is to say, well, I can't fix the cancer, but I can fix the fact that the kid needs a ride to soccer practice every Wednesday. Mm. I can't fix the terminal sentence, but I can fix the fact that they're going to need dinner every night and that dinner's going to be hard when they're going back and forth to the hospital or you know whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of practical problems you can fix. Mm. You know, I mean, I can sit here and listen, the lawn needs mowing, the dog needs walking, the garbage cans have to be taken out every Monday and brought back every Tuesday. I mean, there's a million things you can think of that is in your power to fix. And I'm using air quotes here, fix, <laughs> right? 
helping me make sure that my kids are getting school lunch every day Mm. during this chaos when I'm running around to the hospital and doing all these things and I like worrying about school lunch is the last thing on my mind. Right. Somebody stepping in and taking care of that takes that off my plate so that I can either deal with all the medical logistical things Mm -hmm. or have time to support my kids or have time to support myself or, 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 or any of the other number of things that I could or should be doing instead of worrying about all these logistical things, right? So people could take those things off my plate. And that was truly helpful, even though it wasn't helpful. And like I said, what everybody wants is to take a magic wand and fix the underlying problem. Right. But since there is no fix, then just just acknowledging that to yourself and saying, well, I'm going to write the card because there's no words I can put in this card that will take away their sadness. Right. So instead, I will maybe share a memory of Mm -hmm. the person or, you know, whatever. I think it's it's a helpful way to frame it. That's really that is so helpful. And it strikes me as I'm thinking about it. This feeling where that other person who is the ally, the grief ally, also needs to do some self-care on their end to be able to bear the discomfort of knowing they can't fix it. Mm. So they're not putting that on you. Yes. And so, or it doesn't stop their ability to activate and then come in and, like you said, fix that little problem or write that memory and do something that's actually going to contribute. And so I think that's just really helpful. Well, and so this reminds me actually of a very, very good point. I don't know if you've heard of ring theory. So it's kind of like the person in the center of the crisis is in the center of the circles. Imagine a bullseye with concentric circles, right? Mm -hmm. So like in this case, maybe I and my kids were in the center of the circle. And then the next ring out of the circle is like, you know, close family members. And then the next ring is, you know, close friends. And as you get started getting farther out the ring, you get colleagues and and other friends that aren't as close and acquaintances and other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea behind the ring is support in and dump out. Mm. So so whatever ring you're in, you support the people in a closer ring than you Mm -hmm. and you vent or dump or seek your own support from people farther out in the rings. Mm. So let's say you were a close friend of mine and you were supporting me with bringing food and carpooling my kids and whatever. And... You know, it was awkward for you and uncomfortable, but you were stepping up and doing it because you're a good friend. Okay, great. And then if you want to express, you know, if you're if you're feeling like this is hard for you and you need support, you wouldn't want to seek it from me. Right. I'm closer right. into the circle, right? You would talk to your spouse, your sister, your best friend and say, you know, this is super hard. And so and that is a good example of the way the circles work, right? So then you're because if you if you're bringing me food. But then while you're here at my house dropping off food and you're saying, oh, my God, this is so hard. I can't handle this. I can't. Right? Then I'm like, oh, my God, now I'm supporting you, too. Right. Right. When I'm, you're taking right? care of something else. Yeah, exactly. So 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 the way it works is, yeah, you support me with whatever you're doing and then you seek your own support from, you know, people in your circle or farther out. How do you take care of yourself as a surviving parent hearing your story and hearing how rapidly things happened and taking care of your kids and taking care of your husband, I'm wondering how do you find the time for your own vulnerability, weakness, self-care, healing, all of the things that are so present inside of an experience like this? Mm, Yeah, it's tricky. And, you know, it depends on an awful lot of things. Well, even, for example, like during the time when my husband was sick, Mm -hmm. I had like more than a full plate, right? And yet I found it important to 
look for pockets of time. So like I couldn't I couldn't be like, oh, I need self-care. So I'm going to go away for the weekend and somebody else can deal with all this. Right. That just right. wasn't going to work. And yet that didn't mean that I didn't get any self-care. So, for example, the, the caring bridge thing that I ended up doing, I didn't expect this. I, it ended up being very helpful to me in processing things in real time as we went. So, and when we started it, in fact, my sister said, you should start a caring bridge. And I was like, no, 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 I'll just, you know, send some emails and update some people. And pretty quickly it became obvious that wasn't going to work. And the posts in the beginning, I, when I look back now, I can see it. The posts are very matter of fact, right? Updating people Mm -hmm. on the facts. He had surgery. Maybe he'll come home next week. Right. But as it went on, I can see that I started using that as my vehicle for, for becoming more reflective. Mm. and for processing things for myself as we went along and sharing it with the people around me. And then I was driving back and forth where we are. There's a lake between my house and the hospital. So driving over the lake back and forth mm-hmm. to the hospital all the time, right? Using that, you know, turn off the radio and be processing things. Like, what do I want my next post to be? Mm. The, these are some of the things I'm thinking about. Maybe I'll share this. Let me start working out. And so the process of thinking about, you know, how I'm, what I might put into a post was also a process of me and my head working on things. Mm. Or even like, you know, you're at the hospital and you're, you're there for hours because you're waiting for the doctor to come and do the update and you're waiting for this and that and all these things. And, you know, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't just like get a cup of coffee and come right back. Like go down to the lobby, get some coffee, walk around a bit, do some thinking, kind of get grab that space, right? Because, you know, if I'm visiting at the hospital for six hours or something, well, somebody's got my kids somewhere. Maybe they're at school or maybe they're at someone's house, but my kids are taken care of. And because my husband is in his hospital room, there's nurses around and there's people, mm-hmm. right? So even though I'm here, I could steal that opportunity for some for some self-care on the guise of going to get coffee, which I did go get coffee, right? <laughs> but but it was more than just that errand. It became a, like a, let me grab some time for myself. So I think it's it's kind of thinking creative. You know, when you hear the word self-care, you often think, okay, well, you know, girls night out, girls weekend out, <laughs> right? But when those things aren't possible, then redefining like, what do I need here? Or what what is, how can I carve out some me somewhere in here? And like I said, even if I'm, doing the very boring task of driving back and forth to the hospital that 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 means that my my body is engaged in driving it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that my mind has to be i mean i have to be engaged enough not to get in a car crash right obviously but i can also that is a pocket of time when it's quiet and i can use that time also to think and so for me that was some of the self-care stuff i was able to carve out knowing that you are going to be speaking about your children through your own perspective of them and not speaking about their grief specifically, I'm curious about what role grief plays in your life and their life now. (laughs) Well, if you looked around my house, you'd see piles of grief books (laughs) 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 because, you know, I'm, you know, I have the podcast and people Mm -hmm. send me books and I have to read the books for, but, you know, and it, it, it sounds like it could be depressing or something to, to be reading about grief all the time and talking Mm -hmm. about it all the time and thinking about it all the time, except that it's not because I'm, well, for one thing, I'm connecting with interesting people and also, but I'm thinking about like how to bring more resources or more help or more support to people. And it's an interesting and important problem to be tackling, I think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, also one of the things that I see that's changed just in our life, you know, in the beginning, I would 
you know, be afraid to bring up something for like, if everybody seems okay right now, like if I bring up dad, maybe everybody, maybe everybody was just okay. And now they'll cry and that's terrible. Mm -hmm. And so we should avoid it. Right. And one of the things I've learned is that actually it works out better to like bring up stuff more naturally. Mm. Right. So I don't know, let's say I'm going to grill something on the grill or something and Mm -hmm. For dinner, instead of just being like, okay, well, I'm grilling to to maybe there's an opportunity to say, hey, you know, dad used to love grilling and mm-hmm. his, you know, I'm making flank steak tonight. And I didn't never even had flank steak until I met him. Like the more you kind of just throw in stuff and it doesn't have to mm-hmm. become a whole grief conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. It can just be like, dad, lo- this is his favorite pie. Mm. So I think one of the most important things that I've learned is, is that I can have those discussions and what's the worst that can happen? Someone starts crying because, you know, which, okay, fine. Then someone's crying. I mean, yeah. then you talk about it or you support them. And then so to not kind of be afraid of bringing up stuff like that. It feels very in line with what you were saying about just opening the door, just yes. knowing that that's okay. And then being able to receive whatever walks through that door and knowing that you guys all together have enough safety that, that whatever comes up is okay. And so you can leave that door open. Yeah, exactly. And if I'm grilling and I say dad liked flank steak, that also leaves the door open that, you know, if they see something, if we drive by something and they're like, Oh, there's that place we went to with dad that time. Yeah. That they can yeah. say that. And it doesn't, that they're not, they have to be worried that then that puts me into a whole grief thing. Yes. It's like, Oh yes. yeah, that was fun. And then maybe I can add something to the story. Like actually the first time we went there, blah, blah, blah. What, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And it's hard to, to get to that point. Cause you're like, Oh my God, like everything seems okay. I don't want to mess it up. Right. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you want to mention before we wrap up? I put together some of, I call it my, the top 10 things I've learned from my guests on my podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. So my website, jennylisk.com slash top 10. It's a, you know, people can download that if they want to. And it's just like a document with like highlighting 10 really kind of key principles that I've learned from interviewing all these experts, specifically for widowed parents. That's great. So that might be helpful. And then actually, since we spent some time talking about grief allies and some of your listeners probably are not widowed parents themselves, but maybe mm-hmm. are supporting people who are, I've actually put together a whole bunch of resources, which I have at griefallies.com, which I think could be helpful. Everything from kind of mindset, what to say, what not to say, to like practical, like here's 25 ideas, boom, boom, boom. That's wonderful. Your website is such a great resource. Poking around it, there is just so much on there. And as you were kind of commenting on, for a lot of different perspectives or parts of the process. And so I think it's it's really great for everyone to check out. And on that note, where can people find you? Well, so you can find my book at futurewidowbook.com. So whatever your favorite retailer is, you can get to it from there, futurewidowbook.com. And my website is jennylisk.com, J-E-N-N-Y-L-I-S-K.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Week by Week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Week by Week Podcast and visit our blog at weekbyweekpodcast.com. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and additional resources I used in reference during this episode. This podcast was produced during the COVID-19 pandemic and recorded remotely. Our show today was produced by me, Celeste Busa, Dave Hill, and Douglas Sarine, and produced and edited by Colleen Beasley. Week by Week is a Gumption Pictures production.